Hi and welcome to the Farm Advisory Service uh, podcast. Uh, we're here at Arable Scotland, which is at Bullrudgery Farm uh, just outside of Dundee. My name is Zach Riley. I, I work for SAC Consulting in the Forfar office. I'm joined by Andy Evans, uh, who's one of the event organisers. Andy, why is it so important uh, to come along to Arable Scotland today? Well, I mean, this, this is a, the first year we've run this event and um, it's really an opportunity for uh, for the Farm Advisory Service to interact with researchers from SIUC and elsewhere, like the James Hutton, for example, f with industry, uh, with farmers, and so on. And it really does give an opportunity, I think, to see the wide variety of um, research that SIUC are involved in, but also how that leads into some of the, the advice that the Farm Advisory Service are then offering to their clients and, and to the wider industry. So, for example, you know, we have the uh, varieties which up-and-coming varieties um, examples of fungicide programs particularly in the absence of chlorothanolil next year um, there's research from the Hutton which in the maybe 10 years time we'll actually be seeing that in the field so from very practical solutions which are available to uh, um, growers now all the way through to what may be coming in the next sort of 10 years or so you get to see it here first in in in, well, almost like under one roof, but obviously in, in the trials and so on as well. So I think it's, for the first year of the event, I think it's, it's been really well attended. We've got nice weather, but also I think, you know, there's a lot of interest in what, what we're trying to do with this event. And I think um, we can hopefully make improvements and go on from year to year. So later on in the podcast, we're going to be going through the four zones, uh, mm -hmm. which are the key tour to this event. But Andy, what would you say is the take-home message uh, from this event today? I think, well, the key take-home message I get is that we're not standing still in terms of the, the work that's being done within Scotland on developing, whether it's new pesticide programmes, looking at the varieties that growers are going to be putting in the fields in the next sort of five years or so. It's very forward-looking. I mean, there's displays here about drones as precision farming and so on and so forth so there's a there's enough for everybody here so it's not just varieties and that's it there's a whole range of exhibits and displays here which cover everything from the varieties that are being grown through to the pesticides but also through to novel approaches um, alternatives to conventional pesticides um, precision farming making sure pesticides don't get into water all basically everything that you need to know is here in one spot so at zone one we're looking at applied barley research uh, that's looking at traits from different varieties uh, both ancient and current uh, and and how they can be used in modern day agriculture so my name's bill thomas and i'm from the james hutton institute and uh, i've been working on barley for about 40 odd years i initially started out as a barley breeder a time when there was public financing of barley breeding programs but more recently I've been work concentrating on working with barley genetics and trying to actually work with a plant breeding industry to try and actually develop technologies and uh, germplasm that they can use in their programs there and my final role is actually to try and work and develop the international barley hub as well. We're really interested in trying to find out characteristics which have been left behind in um, modern breeding characteristics which were absent in new barley varieties which we think could be of value in um, developing barley varieties for the future. So we have um, on zone one we have a Tibetan barley variety called Purple Karma. It's called Purple Karma because 
It has a very distinct purple ear and its foliage turns purple as well later on. But the main distinguishing feature of that is its uh, flag leaf and its uh, flag leaf minus one as well. Really, really big leaves it has there. And they're all order of magnitude bigger than other varieties in that respect. So we're thinking that if we can actually combine that into a, an adapted genetic background, we can boost the, the ability to harvest sunlight. In doing that, we can boost biomass production. Then if we can maintain harvest index as well, that's one way of actually bridging the gap of yield, barley yield to the wheat yield as well. So we're trying to improve barley yields by doing that in the long term. The problem is, it's a long-term objective. It would take a good 20 years to actually develop a variety by doing that through conventional breeding technology. We can short-circuit that to some degree by actually using DNA marker technology to map the genes and actually identify the gene responsible for that big leaf barley characteristic and bring it into an adapted background. And that would reduce the time scale down to about 10 years. So that's what we're trying to do. Can you just describe the process for me of, of taking uh, a cultivar or the, the Tibetan variety and actually getting that to market over that 20 year time period that you're talking about? Okay, so the first stage would be to, as we say, map the gene. And in that you would actually cross that big leaf character to another variety which didn't have the big leaf character. And you would follow the segregation of that big leaf characteristic and then you would actually produce a DNA fingerprint of all the lines in there. And then you would actually try and find a particular DNA marker that's totally associated with that big leaf characteristic. And you could then use that, character, that DNA marker to track that gene in a breeding program. So instead of actually waiting to see the plant grow to find the big leaf character, you could actually take the seed have a genetic profile of that and identify it and say that's the seed I want to grow from there on in. So you can short circuit the breeding cycle by doing that, particularly if you can combine it with a technology called speed breeding where you can maybe get in six generations in one year. So you can very rapidly get a new sort of line that carries all those characteristics together. Then select those out in the field over a period of time and then eventually that would then really give you a better line which it then crossed with an adapted line again in a further cycle of crossing which hopefully would give a variety which would go on the recommended list. Brilliant. That's that 20 year cycle That's in a fantastic. nutshell. Yeah. Are there any other really interesting characteristics that you found in, in ancient cultivars which you think might be coming through other than the, the increased flag leaf size? There's, um, there's, so there's a characteristic we're, uh, we're picking up from Scott's beer which is tolerance to manganese deficiency. So we find with colleagues, which we're working with colleagues from the University of Highlands and Islands, and we're growing all the current recommended list barley varieties on a trial up there together with some beer barleys. And all the recommended list varieties show signs of extreme manganese tolerance. Take a drone view of them, all the yellow plots are the recommended list varieties, all the green plots are the beer barley varieties. So we can use a similar technology I was talking about to map the gene and bring that into an adapted background. So you can then get manganese tolerance back into the recommended list varieties. So if you're trying to extend the range of growing of your varieties or you're currently using a manganese spray, you could take that out of your regime. So at zone two, we're looking at breeding for markets. Uh, not only does a crop need to perform well in the field, but it also needs to be attractive for uh, its end uses. Uh, we're here with Steve Hode from SRUC. 
uh, and Steve's going to talk about a bit, a little bit about the different varieties and their pros and cons. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, as you say, we're we're looking at the breeding and evaluation system, particularly how we can think of a crop's agronomic performance or agronomic merit along with meeting the market specification. So the demonstration pots are are really just a backdrop to all the variety trials that we've got on show here today. So what I'm doing is standing in front of some spring barley plots and really just showing how new varieties come along with um, excellent agronomic yield but also bring together with that increase in grain quality. What would you say is the most important thing for a farmer looking to choose a variety? I think for our main outlets such as spring barley for malting then often the, the decision is taken out of their hands but where they can then I think they should consider things like the maturity or, or the ripening of, of the particular variety. Now often they might not have much choice in that because the the malting sector can be quite conservative and wanting one or two uh, particular varieties but where they do have choice do consider maturity and other features such as specific weight and straw stiffness. So Concerto uh, last year in, in this region it didn't yield just quite as well uh, obviously given the, the very dry conditions and as a result of that Laureate seems to have made a bit of a an impact in this area. Is there some pros and cons you could give me about Laureate? Something no, well, should be aware of? Laureate, if it's translated on farm, Laureate's trials yield, it should give an extra half a tonne per hectare. So that's quite a big difference. So we're still waiting for more feedback on Laureate performance, but, but at the moment it looks very positive in terms of a, of a yield increase. But do bear in mind that it, it is a little bit later in maturity, as, as we've already discussed. How much later? On average, in the, on the AHDB scale, it, it's one day. But in later areas, that, that could be two to three days. Is there any varieties which are, which are coming onto the recommended lists which you think growers should be aware of as really promising varieties for future production? Yeah, a variety called LG Diablo is, is, year, is in year two on the recommended list. And on the Scottish list, it's actually 3% higher yielding than Laureate. Now, at the moment, the initial tests seem very encouraging in terms of the malting quality. So that could be quite an exciting variety to move into so that we could have at least two varieties vying for market position over the next two to three years. But do bear in mind that LG Diablo, again, it's a little bit later in terms of maturity. So, uh, so position on farm or even within, within the country might need to be considered. Are there any varieties which are particularly early uh, that growers could be growing for the, the farms which are, usually have a late harvest? Yeah, in, in terms of earliness, th these varieties tend to be ones that are outside of our main uh, outlets. But one variety that is quite versatile is called fairing. Now that suits uh, the grain distilling sector where high grain nitrogen is required. There's also some feed use uh, interest in fairing so that that's minus one on the scale so it's so it's relatively early but there aren't other varieties comparable to, to fairing at the moment unfortunately so what are the other options for growers with spring barley okay so we've already discussed how laura has taken on the 
the market lead now from Concerto. We've got LG Diablo. At the moment, these are supported also by KWS Sassy and Sienna, both of which have a small share in Scotland. You mentioned fairing. Again, that has a small interest for malting, for grain distilling uh, in Scotland. But coming through, the very new varieties, uh, at the moment they are only candidates, but certainly LG Serengeti and SY Tungsten look as though they could do a good job as, as, as Scottish crops. So we're, we're going to wait and see if they get recommended this autumn. But, but those two varieties could be ones to look out for in the future. So we're here at Zone 3 with Professor Fiona Burnett. Fiona, what are the key messages from this stop on the tour? Well, at this stop on the tour, we're sort of dealing with how we can be smarter at managing our crops. And the real backdrop, the big concern is the pesticide losses that we're seeing through legislation and through resistance. But that backdrop of environmental concerns is not going away. So the new tools that we're thinking about, so... There are new pesticides coming, but there are also things like biologicals and how we better tune things to risk. So that is definitely part of the future going forward. We're dealing with a kind of immediate loss of the multi-site chemistry, so chlorothalonil being one of the key things. So that, again, it's part of the future direction that multi-site chemistry with an environmental footprint is not going to be the long-term game. And the new more tuned, more targeted ways of doing things that reduce reliance on pesticides are absolutely where we need to be at in terms of managing crops. So for a shorter term perspective from next year onwards, how would you replace the loss of CTL? Well, the short answer is we can't directly replace it. So any replacements come with a reduced efficacy and we are looking at the other multi-sites, um, which will be part of the the solution of getting us through the night but some of the longer term things of thinking of just more resilient plants in healthier soils that de-stress the plant that will help with some of the key concerns ramularia and barley being one that will be hard to manage without chlorothalonil so those are the kind of options that we're looking at for the wheat crops then you know again it's a major miss but we can use some of the other multi-sites the full pits mancazebs to give some efficacy but again we're going to have to use more resistant varieties and just be slightly smarter about where we we tune things going forward and we're looking at options like taking out spray timing so thinking hard about whether we actually need t not chemistry and wheat that type of approach so that again we're reducing doses reducing timings and just trying to um, you know manage disease in as you know as smart a way as we can so you mentioned biocides at the start. Are these uh, on a commercial scale yet, uh, or are they still a bit of a pipe dream? Some of them are on a commercial scale, but I think all that whole kind of biologicals, biostimulants has until now been, you know, a small piece on the side that we've not really unpicked. But now that again we're needing to reduce our reliance on pesticides, some of those. Um, the elicitors uh, that we're looking at are available commercially and similarly there are lots of biostimulants out there some of which have some efficacy in terms of de-stressing and greening the crop so that again it, it might have been too small an incremental improvement before but now that we're losing some of our major tools that has to be part of our you know our thinking going forward. So other than uh, reducing pesticide rates and uh, removing some applications when feasible. Is there anything else growers can be doing? 
So, I mean, there's massive untapped potential around integrated pest management and a whole spectrum of things we can do there. So that idea that we don't over-rely on any one tool, be it varietal resistance or any one pesticide, and that we start to pull as many pieces in there. And, and growers are picking that up. You know, we've got better rotations coming through. We've got better uptake of varietal resistance. But the idea being that you build that in with lots of other options. So you're using your crop monitoring information to tune your inputs to the risk. You're thinking about the weather. You're pulling in as much information as you can and just using all the tools there, whether it's, you know, biologicals, whether it's um, varietal resistance and the whole piece um, becomes part of the story and yeah there's a Rolls-Royce end of that where you're doing it all but there's also just the small incremental gains and we absolutely can't be at the end of the spectrum that's doing nothing and just relying heavily on, on chemistry because going forward that's not going to be you know the long-term solution for anybody. So bringing it back to today's crop obviously last year was a very low disease pressure year given the dry weather is there anything growers should be aware of uh, in the growing crop in this current season? Well, it's a good point to try and react to the in-season information. So at the minute, you know, lots of splashy weather events, um, you know, concerns over ear diseases. Mostly the spray inputs are done for this year. Um, we're seeing a little bit of kind of crop scorch and things from sprays that went on in the windy weather around the, the Highland Show Week. Um, that in and of itself won't be that damaging. So the key thing now is to you know get the crop through to harvest now, uh, and then you know the the cycle continues. So thinking about you know the varieties that we put in the ground for next year, um, we've obviously lost um, a lot of the insecticide seed treatment. So looking at information around aphids and BYDV is going to be a piece for this autumn and how we manage that. So that's something to think about going forward. Fiona, thank you very much your time that was really interesting you're welcome now let's move on to zone four and we'll hear from Alison Carley from the James Hutton Institute so I'm Alison Carley I'm based at the James Hutton Institute just outside Dundee and here at zone four today we've got a number of plots which are illustrating our research and our work to look at how we might increase the diversity of cropping systems and capitalize on some of the benefits that that diversity can bring to improve the sustainability of our cropping systems so we can look at increasing the diversity in a number of different ways. We might be looking at cover crops to perform specific functions. So, for example, whether that's to, to prevent soil erosion over winter or whether it's to provide bird food or resources for pollinators. We're also looking at um, in increasing the use of, of crops that aren't that aren't that frequently grown in our cropping systems so different kinds of legumes so for example we've been looking at things like soybean at growing things with, um, alongside um, lentils and also looking at developing a, a farber bean that's suitable for Scottish growing conditions and we've been looking at increasing the diversity within the crop as well so one of several of our projects are looking at how we might grow cereals alongside legumes so that we can have reap some of the benefits that legumes bring for example fixing atmospheric nitrogen into a form that plants can use and that can benefit not only the legume but the cereal crop that's growing alongside it so we have projects where we're looking at different growing different crop species together in, in these mixtures these intercrops and to uh, and these can bring other benefits so for example um, suppressing pests and diseases as well as reducing our reliance on synthetic fertilizers 
A lot of our work, the innovations that come out of our work, we have an opportunity to test these at larger scale because of course a lot of our experimental work is done at quite small scale that isn't always relevant to um, commercial growing conditions. So here at Balrudry Farm we're very lucky we have a large experimental platform called the Centre for Sustainable Cropping. This is a six field practice platform where we have six different arable crops growing in rotation and we're looking at um, comparing the standard conventional pr management practice for those crops with a more sustainable integrated practice which is aiming to reduce our reliance on inputs to replace synthetic fertilizers at, le at least partially with with green waste and and other um, recycled forms of, of fertilizers and at using things like integrated pest management to control pests and diseases and reducing the disturbance of the soil. So this is um, an opportunity for some of our work to be tested at larger scale. So for example, where we've got um, pea and barley cultivars that are performing well together in small crop, crop trials as an intercrop, we're testing these at larger scale. And this is a really good opportunity for us to look also at some of the challenges that come along with these novel cropping practices and try and address the management practices that are needed to grow them successfully, whether it's to do with sowing, managing or harvesting the crop. So we're back here with uh, Andy Evans again. Uh, Andy, when you're not organising Arable Scotland, you work as a researcher uh, looking into insects. Uh, is there any key messages that you take uh, that growers should take away from this? Uh, I, th I think one of the key things is to avoid unnecessary spraying. Uh, one of the issues that's arising, not just in Scotland, but the rest of the UK, worldwide really, is resistance of the pests to uh, the insecticides that we have available. and by using pesticides when they're not really needed, uh, that just reinforces the resistance in some pests. So for, for just picking one example, um, pollen beetle and oilseed rape, um, that's resistant now to a group of insecticides called the pyrethroids. And to be honest, unless there's, the crop is really quite um, hoaching with them, using an insecticide is probably not a good idea because it's just reinforcing the resistance within that population. So there's been some really interesting research on how insects are drawn to plants under stress. Could you explain that to us? It's a combination of things really. One of the things is when a plant's under stress it's giving off uh, plant defence compounds and some of them are what we call volatiles, they're smells which we can't really detect ourselves but to an insect it's almost like they can sniff out a plant that's under stress and to an insect then that plant is going to be much easier to attack and to colonize than a, a healthy strong plant. So, so other than reducing uh, rates of insecticides and other pesticides uh, to benefit uh, insects it, it's also worth making sure that the plants are healthy uh, so the insects aren't attracted to the, these plants which are under pressure already. Yeah, no, if you've got a good healthy plant then it's going to be able to fight off to some extent uh, insect pests but also diseases but if you've got stressed plants for whatever reason they're stressed because of uh, maybe drought stress or the opposite when they've been a bit waterlogged for a, for a month or so in the winter for example they're much more prone to being attacked whether it's by disease or pests and then they're kind of natural strength to fight off those things is uh, diminished to some extent. So if you've got a good healthy crop, it's got enough nutrition, um, 
it's not stressed by, say, a bad winter or whatever, then it's much more likely to be able to fend off um, the initial stages, at least, of diseases and pests. Thank you very much for your time, Andy. That's been really interesting, and we hope to see you again next year. Oh, I look forward to it, and uh, hopefully next year we'll be able to demonstrate even a broader range of stuff that we're doing this year. That's everything from today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and if you have any questions about the content that's been discussed today, please contact the Farm Advisory Service helpline, details of which can be found on our website.